when I had the stroke and I went to the emergency room, I really was met like I was some kind of celebrity. The hospital knew I was coming. I, <laughs> when I walked in and I told them my name, they said, oh, come right this way, come right this way here, sit on this bed. I had so many doctors around me, all young people, because it was a teaching hospital and I'm sure a lot of them were residents, but they were all, for the most part, white. Um, they all just kind of poked and prodded at me like I was some kind of medical marvel. And I couldn't understand any of this because I'm like, nobody is really telling me what's going on. And I felt like I had to be my own advocate. And I think that's an important thing for everybody to know. You have to be your own advocate, especially with hospitals and doctors and everything. Do your own research. Because I don't think that we should put all of our trust in a doctor just because they have the title of doctor. We all know our own individual bodies at the end of the day. So I would just say, really listen to what's going on with your body. In addition to the doctor, you know, I'm not saying doctors are bad, but also trust yourself as well. And don't be afraid to get a second opinion. So now you had the stroke. If I remember correctly from your response, you said that this really motivated you to take your um, writing um, a lot more seriously and really invest more of yourself in your work. Talk a little bit about that, please. I would say, start off by saying, you know, trust the timing of your life. Because if I didn't have the stroke, I wouldn't be where I am today. Um, when I was recovering, uh, one day I was watching Law and Order, which seems to be a theme here. <laughs> and I was yeah, <laughs> watching an episode and at the end of the episode, something happened where the um, somebody was found guilty or something, and the families just left the courtroom, and then the credits rolled. And I said, "Well, what happened?" In my oh. head, I'm I'm saying to myself, "I want to know what happened to those families when they went home. What was it like for them?" So I said, "Okay, I'm going to try and write something." So I wrote a scene of a play, and I sent it to my boyfriend, and I said, "Can you read this and tell me if it's good?" Can you tell me if I still have it? Because if I don't, then I can get over this regret of not taking writing seriously. And now it's it's over and done with. And he wrote to me and he said, no, this is good. Let's make it into a short film. I said, oh, oh, okay. So then I wrote it out in screenplay format. And we filmed this one scene and it ended up... Uh, being in over 45 festivals worldwide Ooh. and it led and it led to um, a web series that has two seasons yep. and it really kind of was the jumping off point of me getting into this world of screenwriting and during this time I applied to grad school I saw something for Fordham that said you know we're starting an MFA program in playwriting and apply you don't have to take the um the what is it the GMAT or the what, what's the grad school app uh, GRE GRE, GRE GMAT yeah. what is isn't that like medical um, GMAT I think is for I think that's for business school oh okay well the the GRE I didn't have to take that so I said well this is even better I just have to write an essay and give them a play so I did and had an interview and I was part of the inaugural class for Fordham uh, MFA in playwriting and there were only two of us. So that made it even more special, like a class of two. So and what was the name of that initial screenplay that you wrote? Docket 32357. 
Okay. And talk to me about some of the other work you've done and like specifically what inspired it um, and what you were trying to do, especially in terms of um, highlighting the issues that are present in communities of color and among women, et cetera. I write things that basically nobody talks about. I love highlighting issues that may seem taboo or um, bringing attention to community issues that need to be resolved or highlighted. I give voices to the voiceless. I want to see us on stage. I want to see Caribbean stories. I have yet to see a Caribbean play anywhere. And that's an issue because growing up, again, even though I thought that bringing the noise, bringing the fun was the best of the best, and that's why it was on, it was up. We now know that that's not the case. It, while it's an amazing piece, there needs to be more voices. There's no reason why I can, why Raisin in the Sun should be, should continue to be revived, revived, revived every single year when there are so many voices out there who are writing profound stories about love stories, talking about um, genocides in their country, talking about, um, I, I write about issues that, for instance, I have a bodega play that um, talks about the conflict in Syria. I want to ask you real quick, what's a bodega? Mm -hmm. I know what a bodega is, but for my listeners. Okay, sorry. <laughs> you you were looking at me like, yo, bro, what? Yeah, <laughs> I know what a bodega is. <laughs> so, yes. Actually, just to prove to you, I know what a bodega is. It's a corner store. Um, and the corner stores that usually you'll find in communities of color that are owned by Latinos. Um, or the, Middle Eastern folks. Yes. Yeah. 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 A bodega is basically a one-stop shop. It is the store 24 of, uh, or the Cumberland Farm, whatever whatever stays open, 7-Eleven. It's the community uh, convenience store. Love you know, interestingly, I only refer to it as a bodega if it was owned by a Latino. I, if it was owned by like an African-American, it was a corner store. So in really? New York, yeah. So when you <laughs> said Middle Easterns, I'm like, oh, oh, I, I always differentiated. So in New York... It's a bodega. If it if it's the you know, if you can get anything there and it's on the corner, it's the bodega. Oh, interesting. Okay. And if there's a cat, there has to be a cat. There's always a cat. <laughs> there weren't cats at mine in my community growing up in Dorchester. Uh, there is um, certainly you could find everything in there, but plexiglass was like the thing that you found in bodegas in Dorchester. We didn't have that. We didn't have it. Well, you know what. So I grew up on top of a bodega yeah. and um, my bodega had uh, late night cockfights down below oh, and then had like fried chicken the next day. But um, oh, it was awesome. But continue. I interrupted you. <laughs> oh, I don't even know where I was going. Okay, wait, let me think back. Oh, right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I talk about stories, just our life experiences on stage. That's what it is. Or highlighting issues, you know, for instance, we have um, right now talking about um, Antonio Brown and mental uh, mental illness within the uh, within football. So I talk about, you know, traumatic brain injury. If we're talking about CTE, you know, with football players or traumatic brain injury with our veterans, you know, our veterans are a lot of us are black and brown. So what does that look like? If sometimes I'll have things swirling in my head, you know, ideas of, oh man, I want to talk about CTE. 
that's really awful what's what's happening, you know, all these brain injured young black men. And then I'll think about veterans, you know, saying, oh man, the PTSD. Well, wait a minute, what if those two men meet? Ah. And then we're also talking about, you know, friendship, male friendships, which we don't see on stage because it's like, no, if we're going to have friendship stories, it has to be women. It's like women buddy stories. Die Hard is a, is a male buddy story too. We need more of those. So that's what I'm saying. Like, what happens if these two guys meet? What, is, what does that conversation look like? What do they have in common? How do they relate to each other? So it's always kind of like that. It's an answer to a question that I'm looking for that I hope the audience will walk away having their own questions and start a conversation within their own communities or circles. And what can, what does that bring about? That's what excites me. You know, what are the conversations that you have after the show? I don't want you to see something of mine and be like, oh, that was cool and keep it moving. I want you to have questions and have a discussion and see what that opens up. Going back to this matter of scarcity of these stories, right? Like I totally <laughs> agree with you. These stories aren't really out there. Do you think that's a function of exclusion or lack of encouragement? I think it's a function of exclusion because um, there is no lack of talent out there. There are incredible stories by incredible people of color. It's They're just not being brought to the forefront. And that is changing. It's not changing fast enough because you also have to think about um, a lot of these institutions, a lot of these theatrical institutions are who they're run by and where the money comes from. So of course, the easy thing to say is, well, put up your own work. Okay, cool. I can do that. How many people is it going to reach? How, you know, there's like all the logistical things. Oh, and based on that, do you ever find yourself having to, I guess, figure out what can I include in this story to give it more appeal? Like, are there particular stories that sell? And knowing what sells, do you have to include some of those elements in what you're writing to make sure your stuff gets out there? A lot of times, especially when I'm having meetings, um, they have something called a mandate where uh, shows are, or producers or directors are looking for specific shows that cover X, Y, and Z topics. But you don't know what that is until it comes out. So it's like, well, damn, I just spent a year working on this and it's not even on the mandate. Oh. <laughs> what do I do? I can tweak it to kind of fit the mandate or I can just write what the hell I want because that's my voice and I'm not going to bend or break for anybody and hope that one day somebody notices it and sees it. Because I doubt that, you know, August Wilson or Ntozak Shange or George C. Wolf, you know, all these people were writing about things because of a mandate or because they knew that that would that would be what sells. They wrote because that's what was speaking to them. Facts. If you had to point to one work that you've done, what is your seminal piece or that you would note as your favorite? Ooh, that's so hard. <laughs> it's a tie. It can't be a tie. It gotta be one. Okay. I'll let, you, I'll let you do two. I'll let you do two. So I would say that um, I have two favorites and they're pretty different. One is uh, called Blooming in Dry Season. It is a play that's set in a rum shop in Grenada. 
and it covers Rose as an oppressed housewife. She's lived her life for her husband, Fitz, who's a failed Calypsonian, and her daughter, Garland, who's a gifted steel pan player. But when a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for her daughter presents itself, Rose realizes she's put her own dreams on hold long enough, and she's forced to make a decision. Should she stay or should she go? So it's a really beautiful coming-of-age story, kind of like Fences, but in the Caribbean, with like a touch of um, a twist. So that, I, I just really love those characters. I really miss them. I said, man, I, I miss these people. And I think that that is one of um, the most beautiful things you can experience when you're finished writing something, when you really truly love your characters and you have to say goodbye to them. Mm. So um, the other piece that I think uh, I would say, you know what, this, this is probably my current masterpiece. It's a play called Black Americana for Sale. And it was inspired by um, the injustices that uh, have been um, the recent injustices that uh, we have experienced as Black people, as a community. Um, and it was really kicked off by Philando Castile. And I didn't know how to express a lot of what I was feeling. So I just started to write. Yeah. And um, it kind of transformed into this piece of uh, you know, a take on the current prominent themes and identities of African-American culture. And it's told in a series of vignettes that explore imprisonment, racial stereotypes, the ongoing trauma of slavery, wounds that can't heal and the power of legacy, all by um, a noose that travels through history. Ooh. So, yeah. So it's a bit like a choreo poem. And um, yeah, it's really powerful and I'm going to have to get one of these um, at my school. Yeah, I would uh, yeah, love that. Yeah, we're going to have to do that soon. These sound like really powerful works. And um, do they come with guides, discussion guides? I am the discussion guide. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. I will remember that. I will keep that in mind. And um, my last question for you here. So you just cited these two plays that you wrote. Can anybody performing them? Um, do you prefer Black characters for these roles? Essentially, I'm asking you a question about um, colorblind casting versus color-conscious casting. Well, if if I have in my character description that a person is Black, White, Asian, or, you know, Latino, it is with a purpose. It is because this character specifically um, has a background that necessitates, you know, being of that race, ethnicity, you know, whatever. Um, if, a, you know, if for instance, a school reached out to me and said, we want to do this, but we are casting based off the pool we have, I would say, well, then why is your pool so small? Yeah. Then there's an issue there that maybe you should explore yeah. and, and come back to me when you fix that. Mm. Have you because, had to do that? Uh, yeah, I have. And I would, I would have hoped that that would have changed things because they had to make adjustments for me and they had to find actors of color in order to do my play. But years later, it's still the same issue. So my hope for change in the industry uh, sometimes gets a little tarnished because I see what's happening, but it doesn't, um, again, if we're 
standing in our magic and <laughs> being hopeful and trying to transform the industry because it, it is a rough industry, then we just have to remain firm and keep pushing forward and being the change that we want to see. And so as we get to the conclusion here, you brought back that initial point that you um, uh, made about ha- each one of us having magic. And I mean, it's so important uh, to let young people know that they have this magic and that there's opportunity. And I'm thinking about the question I asked you about exclusion versus encouragement. Um, I wonder how many opportunities are out there to promote theater and writing to young people in places like communities where you grew up, where I grew up, so that they could know that it's possible and that their stories matter and people want to hear their stories. Are you aware of such initiatives going on currently? I am. And I think a lot of that comes from, you know, people such as yourself who wants to highlight it and, you know, would ask and feel free to ask, you know, hey, do you mind speaking to my class? I'll always say yes, because I wish that there was someone like that when I was growing up and there wasn't. So if there is ever a chance to inspire somebody who doesn't know how to get started or thinks that nobody's listening to them, I would never say no to to that. And I know that a lot of my other fellow creatives feel the same exact way. So it's all about never being afraid to ask for what you want. Because you'll find that there are so many of us out there who are so generous and want to give what they didn't have when they were younger and wish they had. So true. Yes, absolutely. Did I allow you to finish your thought there? You did. And how can somebody find you? How can somebody learn more about the work you do and uh, connect with you about possibly bringing your uh, performances to their uh, institution? So I have a website, elgin.wordette. Sorry, no. Don't even know my own website. Let me go back. I have a website, elginwardali.squarespace.com. And if you can't remember that, all you have to do is type in Elgin because I guarantee only myself will come up. (laughs) There are not many Elgins out there. And how do you spell Elgin? E-L-J-O-N. Last name W-A-R-D like David, A-L-L-Y. And on that website, you can see a lot of my work. And there's even a link where you can shoot me a message, ask me a question. And yeah, I'll respond. Awesome. Thank you, Elgin. So appreciate you coming on Identity and Me uh, today. And like I said, you did it on such short notice. This was such an insightful conversation. I learned so much more about you. And you've been doing a lot over the last 20 years since we graduated. Well, almost 20 years. And it's awesome work. And um, uh, I know you'll continue to do it and do well. Thank you. Thank you, Hadley. It's Stenna on the podcast. Oh, my bad. My bad. Okay. It's all good. Thank you, Stenna. Thank you, Stenna. (laughs) No problem at all. Identity and me. Identity and me.